I'm Richard Hollingham. Welcome to the Planet Earth podcast, where we investigate what a group of ecologists has been getting up to in Southern Ireland. Three, two, one, fire! And where did giant dinosaurs like to live? First, though, let's travel to Antarctica. It's through this door here. <coughs> Very large door, almost like a freezer, as you'd imagine. Through past some plastic sheeting and into the aquarium at the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge where there are ten large, deep, almost baths really and in one of them there's, these look like enormous translucent sea anemones there's starfish, clams this one there are colourful, almost camouflage fish and in the far one there's a giant spider this, if you pardon the expression, is just the tip of the iceberg. And with me is Hugh Griffiths, who's been involved in a major international investigation into the abundance of Antarctica's vast marine biodiversity. Now, this is called the, the Census of Marine Life. You just published some of the, the interim results, particularly looking at what's on the, on the sea floor. And, and looking at the stuff around us, what, what sorts of creatures are we talking about? Um, largely we're talking about invertebrates, animals without a backbone, but there are some fish species here as well. And they're all animals that live on the seafloor, generally in shallow waters around the Antarctic because they're all collected by our divers, so they're hand-caught, so they're not things that have been damaged in a net or anything like that. And then they, we have two aquariums, one down in the Antarctic where we do most of the work, and then this other aquarium where we bring specimens that are suitable for transporting because obviously they have to travel a long way to get up here. And those are the sorts of animals we have up here as well. Uh, and in, in terms of numbers of, of species, you started off with not very many, and now you've got thousands. Yeah, in the Antarctic, we originally had sort of low numbers of estimates of species because people assumed that cold places had very few species because the tropics are warm and they have a lot of species. But the more you look, the more you find. And it's partly because of a lack of sampling in the area and I think that's the same for the deep sea and other areas where the more people look the more they find and we've gone to almost doubling previous estimates of species for the Antarctic and we do know that if we carry on finding species at the rate we're finding them we're going to at least double that again so we're looking at something like 17,000 species of animals living on the shelves around Antarctica if things carry on the way we're finding them. Well let's just walk along this row of tanks here and this is the, the one that... It's scary, this giant sea spider in the corner. And the giant anemones... I mean, everything's big. Why big? Um, there's a lot of theories about why things get so big in Antarctica. A lot of them are because some of the predators are missing, so some animals get bigger to replace those predators, like crabs and sharks and things. But others get big because the cold water will keep, maintain gases much easier, so they dissolve a lot easier, so we have a lot more oxygen in the water. And so they can get a lot bigger because they're not limited by how easily they can absorb the oxygen. And a lot of them grow very slowly in the cold water. And if you grow slowly, you usually end up bigger at the end. So there's a lot of reasons why they get bigger, but they can get huge compared to their European cousins. What's the point of, of a census? Why go out and, and find these things? Why count them? Why do it? Um, the census originally, the census of marine life, which is a global census has a whole bunch of different projects that are involved. And the Antarctic Census is trying to firstly get a robust, a robust baseline for what we know about Antarctic marine biodiversity anyway and where we know it from. So 
that can lead to help with future work on things like climate change and how that will affect the animals, fisheries and all of those kind of work. So people have an idea of what we know and how much is out there at the moment so that any changes can be monitored from this point onwards. And what are your concerns then about changes and the effects on, on these sorts of organisms? Um, firstly, a lot of these animals are specifically adapted to very cold temperatures. And so we're shivering in this room now, but they're loving it. And if you warm them up, some of these keel over and die within a couple of degrees centigrade. So it's, it's, firstly, they could either be killed off by that. But also competition and predators that can't currently survive in the Antarctic because it's too cold for them could easily move in if things start to warm up. And also changing landscapes and losing the ice and some of the important things that feed into the Antarctic ecosystem sea ice area is very important for primary productivity so feeding everything else and if you lose the sea ice a lot of these animals are going to lose their main source of food could they adapt some of these animals will definitely adapt and some of them seem to do better with the less stress of having to survive the cold but others as I say keel over and some of them might just migrate to colder areas but the problem with Antarctica is that there's a big chunk of land in the middle of the continent, so they can't keep going south. There's a limit to how far they can migrate before they end up having to climb onto a beach. So the point is you, you run out of cold areas eventually. Yeah, you definitely do, and because at least 50% or probably higher of the animals that live in Antarctica are unique to Antarctica, it means that if you lose them in Antarctica, there's nowhere else in the world you can find them. So it's a loss of global biodiversity if you lose any Antarctic biodiversity. Now, you've been on expeditions where you've, you've found new stuff, new species, in areas that no one's ever been to. That, that really surprises me. It is amazing, actually. You can go to parts of Antarctica, the deep sea, but also shallow seas. I was uh, two years ago on an expedition to the Amundsen Sea where nobody had collected seafloor animals from before. And we found animals that didn't surprise us because we, we knew about them from all around Antarctica. And then also whole groups of animals that were new species and even a couple of new genera so the level above species so it's amazing to be able to go out and still find brand new things in a time when people assume they know everything about the world well Hugh thank you very much and we'll put pictures of some of the unique Antarctic species on our website this is the Planet Earth podcast with news from the natural world and in a couple of minutes our first audio diary goes with a bang but here's a taster for a couple of the other stories on the Planet Earth online website. And that volcano remains the focus of study for the Natural Environment Research Council's aircraft. Scientists have been using planes to fly towards the expected position of the ash plume while deploying highly sensitive instruments. The aim is to find the point at which the concentrations of sulfur dioxide and volcanic ash start to increase and become a potential danger to flying. So where's the dinosaur story, you're asking? Well, in a groundbreaking study, UK scientists have found that some giant sauropod dinosaurs preferred to live in inland habitats, while others were more common in coastal areas. With long necks, long tails and tiny heads, sauropods were gigantic herbivores that first appeared around 220 million years ago, at the beginning of the age of dinosaurs. Until now, little was known about the ecological preferences of the sauropod groups and how this has affected their evolution. The full story on the Planet Earth online website. But one of the new things we're trying in the Planet Earth podcast is audio diaries to get a feel for the science from the scientist's point of view. It also means we can capture sounds from places that, well, frankly, we can't afford to get to. 
We've issued recorders through researchers heading to Borneo, coral reefs in Indonesia and even Antarctica, and we hope to get some of them back. Our first audio diary comes from Stuart Bearhop, an ecologist at the University of Exeter's Cornwall campus near Falmouth. Now, Stuart studies bird migration, and one of the techniques he uses is tagging. This involves catching geese and swans, measuring them and putting a tag on them. What could possibly go wrong? Every year he goes on tagging expeditions, recently to Ireland to catch light-bellied Brent geese. Or at least he tries. Okay, so this will be the last uh, cannon netting trip of the winter for us. Um, We've left Cornwall about 18 hours ago. And unfortunately, we're still stuck in uh, Pembroke Dock, uh, waiting to catch the ferry over to Ireland. Um, we've been on the ferry since 2 o'clock this morning. It's now 2 o'clock uh, in the afternoon, and uh, the weather's been atrocious, uh, and so the ferry has not sailed. Um, they were uh, telling us that the, the swells were up to 9 metres out in the Celtic Sea. So although it's been uh, frustrating hanging around here, uh, I think I'd much rather be sitting in uh, a nice calm sea in a warm cabin than getting thrown about all over the place out there. Having said that, uh, I'm really looking forward to getting over there and getting out tomorrow morning, uh, starting to get a, 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 a feel for what the geese are doing. It's a really, really stunning part of the world over there. And um, getting around, looking at the geese, trying to identify some places where we might set some nets uh, and hopefully... Uh, catch some geese sometime in the next few days. One of the big things about migration is people have been studying it for thousands of years. Aristotle was one of the first people to express an interest in why birds appeared and disappeared with the seasons. But we still understand very little about it. And one of the best ways to understand it is to actually be able to track individuals across their annual cycles rather than populations. And so what we really need is large numbers of individuals within populations that have marks on them that allow us to identify them as individuals and thereby relink various aspects of the annual cycle so we can say we saw individual X in habitat Y at this time of year and this individual's breeding in habitat Z in this kind of year. Kendrew, 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 listen, um, we probably want to, we probably want to check the other net. We've got, in your net, we've got, we're going to get lots of birds. I think we'll just leave it, let it happen, but we've got, we've got, Okay, it's, um, it's now 6 o'clock in the morning. We've been up for an hour. It's still dark. The sun's just coming up. Um, and we set nets uh, in the intertidal area where we've seen uh, geese coming in to drink from a freshwater, a uh, little freshwater inflow. So we've set two nets. These are, these are large sort of uh, cargo net kind of things, a bit thinner than that, um, about uh, 30 metres or 25 to 30 metres long, and they shoot out about... Uh, about 10 metres so there's quite a large catch area there but of course it requires the geese to be uh, in the right kind of place um, for us to get anything we've uh, we've the nets are fired uh, via a sort of mortar system so there's four what we call cannons but they're effectively mortars with charges in them and then there's weights attached to those cannons uh, or bit and um, rammed into the cannons and those are attached to the nets and, and that's linked up to uh, a firing box and uh, we send a large voltage down which fires all of the, the charges that are in the cannons and the net shoots out over the birds. We have tended as ecologists to view the annual cycle as a series of discrete segments 
And it's abundantly clear that that's not the case. So what you can do in the summer is inextricably linked to what happened to you in the previous months because that's going to govern the amount of resources you can devote to reproduction. And this is particularly acute in migratory species because there's a timing element there as well. So they have to be in condition to fuel migration at the right time so they arrive in the breeding grounds at the right time. And uh, for these geese in particular, it's even more acute because these geese are not just trying to arrive at the right time, they're not just trying to fuel their migration, but they're also carrying all the resources for reproduction in there with them. So trying to link up these components to the annual cycle, understand how things like winter habitat selection where the animals particularly go, what kinds of habitats they're choosing, ultimately translates into reproductive success as an important, both from a fundamental ecological perspective, but also from a conservation perspective. Things are developing all the time. It's really good. It's looking really good, I think. We'll farm mine first, I think. The interesting thing about wildfowl, uh, uh, geese and swans both do this, is that the young have a very long period of dependency. So the young spend pretty much the entire first year of their lives with their parents. This means there's this cultural component to where the young learn to go. So the young learn to visit particular staging areas and they learn to visit particular wintering areas. And what we're interested in, from our colour ring birds, where we've got these individual marks, we see evidence of groups of individuals you know, remaining together way past the point they become independent. So the idea there is, is that maybe this cultural element creates certainly some sort of barrier to gene flow. And so you have discrete family lineages potentially within different wintering sites. And of course, there is a very interesting way in which population divergence could occur. Once you've got isolation, uh, true isolation that is, and of course we're not saying in this instance we've got true isolation, but once you've got isolation, you have a mechanism by which populations could diverge from one another. And of course that's very interesting because that's the way uh, in which species are formed. Ready? Not flashing yet. Okay. Flashing now. Uh, switch in. Switch in. Switch. Three, two, one, fire! Especially with these Arctic migrating species, they're potentially sentinels for climate change because we, well, most of the models predict that it's the Arctic that, that where we're going to see the effects of climate change happen most rapidly and potentially er- the earliest. And so, again, having known individuals, if we understand or have some understanding of the kinds of processes that lead to uh, poor reproduction, and, and though our, our good reproduction and the conditions are in place on the wintering and staging grounds, yet we see, we're seeing failures, then we may be able to link that to processes that are going on in the Arctic, like ice, ice cover or, well, lack of ice cover, probably. S4 is an adult, is it? Yeah, yeah okay. Thank you. We're a small one, 31.8 on the wing. Okay, it's funny because people have thought for some time that ringers and banders are these kind of rather obscure group of people rather like train spotters or something like that but it's clear that actually understanding the ecology of individuals has become a very very important issue because only by understanding individuals because that is the unit at which selection works it doesn't really work at the population level only by understanding how individuals make decisions and make choices and how repeatable those things are over time can we really get a feel for what's going on For me, the main reason I do this is because I am fascinated by the natural world and wild animals. And I think the day that, that I get a goose in my hand and I don't look at it and think, 
this thing that's about a kilogram in weight and it's you know it's about 30 40 centimeters long is going to be flying over the Greenland ice cap at 15,000 feet in about a month's time the day that doesn't stops making me go wow is the day I probably stop it we've got in a container that we've been keeping them uh, calm in started raining now it's a very grey day and we're just going to release them off, off the, the dune onto beach and into the sea and there they go and many thanks to Stuart for recording that audio diary for us incredible stuff we'll try to get some pictures for you up on the website Incidentally, if you've more of an appetite for the power of volcanoes, there's also an interesting story on the site about the most studied volcano in the world, as well as podcasts on volcanoes and earthquakes. And that's the Planet Earth podcast. If you like it, do tell your friends. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Richard Hollingham from the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge. Thanks for listening.